The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. So I don't know if you've ever had this happen or not. Uh, it's, it's kind of a regular occurrence for me. My, it goes like this. My wife will be cooking in the kitchen. I am acting as a dutiful assistant in the process. And then she will say something to me, something like, hey, can you grab the blueberries out of the refrigerator for me? So I will walk confidently over to the fridge, pull open the door, stare at the matrix of items inside of the door. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, there are no blueberries in the fridge. But there's this little voice in the back of my head that says, the blueberries are there. And the minute you say, there's no blueberries there, your wife is going to come right over to the fridge. She's going to pull the blueberries out from right in front of you, and you'll be humiliated. <laughs> so keep looking. So inevitably, what I do is I stare harder and longer. Not deeper, mind you. I'm just sort of like taking it all in, looking for anything that looks familiar like blueberries. And once I'm confident that there are indeed no blueberries in the fridge, I finally get up the courage to say, I, I, don't, I don't see them. To which my wife will respond by walking over to the fridge pulling off of the shelf right in front of me a nice big carton full of blueberries. And then comes the dreaded look. Perhaps you know what that look is like. Now, what's amazing about that, what's fascinating about that, is that we can be on the freeway driving 65 miles an hour, and a mile and a half on the di off in the distance, I will see a little tiny speck underneath the shade of a tree standing in the tall grass. And I'll go, whoa, look at that buck. <laughs> you know, sometimes something is right in front of your face and you can't even see it. Today in our passage, we have Mark's account of the triumphal entry. It is the moment where Jesus finally presents himself as the Messianic King to Jerusalem. And there's so many threads from Scripture that are all bound together in this moment. Up until now, Jesus has been very careful not to advertise that he's the Messiah. He's been hushing everybody along the way, saying, hey, you know, let's not talk about this. Let's not, let's not do this. But, but now, finally, Jesus makes arrangements to intentionally fulfill the promises of the Old Testament, specifically the promise of Zechariah chapter 9, by riding into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey as the promised king of Israel. This is the moment that all of Israel's history and Jesus' ministry have been pointing to. 
all the miracles that Jesus did, these were all signs to validate, to demonstrate that the king and that the kingdom were truly here. All of his ministry has been pointing to this moment. The opening of the blind eyes, the lame walking, the lepers being cleansed, the dead being raised, the poor hearing, the gospel, the hope, the good news that a king who rules with justice is finally here. And the miraculous abundance of provision, you think of the, the miracle of the loaves and, and the turning of water into wine. These were all Old Testament promises that, that, that Israel was taking stock of to know when it was that the Messiah had come. And now, after all the hushing, Jesus comes riding in on the colt of a donkey, just like Zechariah said he would. Now, the Pharisees, they didn't like what was happening. In Luke chapter 19, verses 39 to 40, we're, we're told that the Pharisees uh, were, were, were trying to hush the disciples of Jesus. They, they didn't like the confrontation that would occur as a result of this crowd gathering around Jesus in this moment. And they were afraid that this would bring conflict with the Roman occupiers. So they told Jesus to rebuke his disciples, to not raise a ruckus at this moment. And and Jesus responds by, by marking how amazing of a moment this is and telling them, look, even if these disciples were quiet, the rocks themselves, creation itself, would begin to sing in recognition of this moment. It's such a momentous occasion that if the disciples had not cried out praise, the stones would begin to sing and do it for them. Yet neither the crowds or the disciples understood the significance of the moment. They celebrated a political moment, but they did not understand the the eternal significance of it. You know, John chapter 12, verse 16, in reference to this exact moment, says this, says his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him. So as we wade into this moment in Scripture, let's stretch our minds to see Not just what the crowds see, but to see what Jesus saw. Because while the people around Jesus will cheer today, they ultimately do not understand the significance of this moment. For them, it was a political moment. For Jesus, it was spiritual. For the crowds, it meant confrontation with Rome. But for Jesus, it was confrontation with sin and death and the enemy. For the crowds, it was a celebrated figure on a donkey. But for Jesus, it was the presentation of the Son of God as the Messiah. For the crowds, it was the start of a movement. But for Jesus, it was the focal point of redemptive history. Now, because there's so many important themes that meet their purpose in this passage, I think 
that what I'd like to do, if you're okay with this, is, is to sort of fly over the story first. We're going to kind of work our way through the passage, and then we're going to circle back at the end and, and pull out a few things for us to think about, to consider uh, as, we, as we think about this moment. The goal being that I just want us to see, first of all, what's happening, to understand how this moment unfolds. Then after we've worked our way through the text, uh, we'll make an attempt to see some of the significance of the day from an eternal perspective. So now let's grab a little bit of context. Up until now, Jesus has been staying in Bethany. He, he came to Bethany, which is close to Jerusalem, in order to raise his friend Lazarus from the dead. Perhaps you'll remember that story from the Gospel of John. Now, John's gospel tells us that this is such big news that some who saw the raising of Lazarus went and reported it to the Pharisees. And the chief priests and the Pharisees received that news. They called together a council, and they began plotting to kill Jesus. John records their reasoning for us like this in John chapter 11, verses 47 to 53. So the chief priests and the Pharisees, he says, gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. What an amazing statement the high priest makes. John notes that. He said he did not say this of his own accord, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. So knowing this plot then, Jesus departs from Bethany and goes and stays in Ephraim. Meanwhile, the chief priests and the Pharisees had given order according to John chapter 11, verse 57, that if anybody saw Jesus around Jerusalem, they should immediately let them know so that they could go and arrest him. But six days before Passover, Jesus returns to Bethany. There's this little moment here where, where Mary comes and anoints his feet with ointment and wipes it with her hair. It's a scandalous moment. Judas speaks up and says, hey, we could have sold that and given it to the poor. And Jesus says, no, she does this for my burial. So Jesus knows. Jesus knows that there is death awaiting him. He understands that he is headed into a hotbed of conflict that will ultimately end in his death. Now, as he returns to Bethany and is in the house of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, a crowd begins to form. They hear that Jesus is in the house, and so they come, and, and John's Gospel tells us not only on the account of Jesus, but also 
they want to see Lazarus, this guy who was apparently dead and then raised from the dead by Jesus. After hearing all the hype, all the stories of Jesus, the crowd is watching Jesus' moves to see if he will go up to Jerusalem or not. You see, for Jesus to enter Jerusalem at this time, it puts him in direct conflict with the religious and political rulers of the temple in Jerusalem. And this is where we pick up our story now in Mark chapter 1, or chapter 11, verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. Jesus is measured in his approach to Jerusalem, but he is also very, very purposeful. It appears from our passage here that Jesus has made arrangements To come riding in on a donkey, Jesus sends two of his disciples ahead to a village to grab a donkey for him to ride. Now, Jesus, of course, he mostly walked everywhere that he went. Perhaps you'll remember throughout our time in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is always on foot, always traveling with his disciples, hiking, the the first original backpacker. But here, in this moment... He makes arrangements to just ride a couple of miles up over the the backside of the hill of Mount of Olives down into Jerusalem. This is purposeful. He is making a twofold statement through sending the two disciples on this mission. He He is purposefully fulfilling the promise or the prophecy of Zechariah Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, and presenting himself as Messiah. And up until this time, Jesus has been hushing his people, but now he is going public with it all. And in addition, he's also coming to Jerusalem as a peaceful king, rather than a warring king who would typically ride in on a horse as a symbol of his power. One commentary I read this week said it this way. The method of entry also indicated that Jesus entered as a servant ruler, not as a political conqueror. When Israel's rulers wanted to present themselves as servants of the people, they rode donkeys. And there's examples of this in Judges chapter 10, verse 4, and Judges chapter 12, 
verse 14. But when they entered in as military leaders, they rode horses. Pastor Paul reminded me this week in our sermon prep time that how a leader makes an entrance, makes a statement about what kind of ruler they consider themselves to be. And this small action by Jesus is met with exuberance by the people around him. First, we we get to see the disciples and how they respond. For the disciples, Jesus is finally telling the world what they had already determined to be true about it. Remember, Peter was the first one to say it. And Jesus asked the disciples, "Who who do you say that I am? Peter's the one who who pipes up and he says, you are the Christ. That's the Greek word for Messiah, the anointed one. You are the Christ, he said. And now, finally, the world will know what they have already determined. And, And they've already been dreaming about the outcome of this. They've already been discussing it with one another. Okay, so when, when he rises to power, what, what's going to happen with us? Are, who do you think is going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Who, who's going to have the highest position within the kingdom when Jesus rises to power? They've had disagreements among themselves about this fact. The disciples are the ones who are leading the charge in acknowledging this moment. We know that because of verse 7. They come and they place their, their garments upon the donkey so that they can make a sort of makeshift saddle for Jesus to sit on. They get what's happening. They understand the significance of this moment as he comes riding into Jerusalem. He never rides a donkey. He made the arrangements. This is the moment. Finally, it's here. Finally, everybody will know. In Luke's gospel, we're told that they also spread their cloaks in front of the donkey so that it could walk on them. This has a similar purpose uh, in in our modern day equivalent of like rolling out the red carpets, a way of showing honor, right? John's gospel tells us that the crowds that had seen Lazarus raised from the dead were also there. And they they also began lifting up praises and acknowledging what Jesus had done. Luke completes the picture by telling us that the Pharisees told Jesus to tell his disciples to pipe down. But Jesus responded by saying that the rocks would cry out if they didn't speak up. So for the disciples, from their perspective, this is a massive shift in Jesus' ministry. This is the moment. Then verses 8 through 10 tell us about the crowds that had gathered. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. You see, for the crowds, 
This is a political movement to get behind. Jesus is the figurehead of that movement. You know, as is the case in all places, in all times, people often think that the world is made better through political change, through a shift in power. They came originally to see something fantastical. They wanted to see, you know, Jesus the miracle worker, Jesus the prophet. They wanted to see Lazarus raised from the dead. They wanted to, to see all, all the fantastical parts of this. But now they are witness to Jesus' announcement that he's the Messiah. And seeing Jesus take this stance and present himself as the Messiah is an opportunity for them now to make their voices heard. It's a vote for change in the political regime. And in the buzz of it all, people begin cutting down leafy branches and, and laying them out before Jesus as he rides on the donkey towards Jerusalem. They're continuing this red carpet effect as Jesus continues his approach. And they also begin shouting. And their shouts are a quote from the book of Psalms, Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. When they say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now the, the translation of the psalm into English Save us, is save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. And what is clear from this quote is that the people hoped that Jesus would be their Messiah. This is clear from what they cried out. Hosanna is the transliteration of a Greek word that is translated, uh, transliterated the Hebrew, Hosai-ana. Oh, save us now. That's Psalm 118, verse 25. It, it was an exclamation of praise calling for deliverance. And that's what the crowd is shouting. Additionally, they go on to say, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Now this, this phrasing tells us that they understood that Jesus was presenting himself as the promised Davidic king. It refers back to the Davidic covenant, the covenant that God made with David. That covenant is found in 1 Chronicles chapter 17, verses 11 through 14, where God promised David, he said to him, when your days are fulfilled, to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you, but I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. 
So the crowd is acknowledging that this Davidic promise given, given to David, this covenant made with David, is being fulfilled in this moment as they cry out. This promise was something that the prophets also anticipated. It was not something fulfilled in any one of David's sons. The Messiah would come, would reestablish Israel's former glory like the days of the rule of King David. And the crowd is essentially shouting, let this be the moment where God fulfills this promise to David. Okay, so let's picture the scene for a moment. Let's use our imaginations a little bit to imagine the crowds shouting as Jesus is making his way up the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. The disciples are making a runway with their coats. The crowds are cutting down branches and laying them down in front of him. As Jesus makes his way riding on a donkey, everyone is celebrating. This is the moment that the disciples have been waiting for. This is the political moment that the crowds have been hoping for. The Pharisees are trying to hush the people around Jesus. And in the midst of all the chaos, they begin to crest over the hill and make their way down the other side. And Jesus gets his first look at the city of Jerusalem. People are shouting. Cries are being lifted up. Jesus is riding the donkey. His his disciples are celebrating. And Jesus looks out and he sees the city. And Luke's gospel tells us that he breaks down weeping. As soon as he lays eyes on the city... He begins weeping. He does the unexpected. And we don't get that that detail from Mark's account, but Luke's gospel in chapter 19, verses 41 to 44, tells us this. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you had known this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you, and they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. But wait a minute. They were just crying out. Let this be the moment. Hosanna, save now. What do you mean they didn't get it? What a contrast here in this moment as the crowds are celebrating. See, this should clue us in that what the crowds see and what Jesus sees are different. The crowds are cheering, the disciples are excited, the Pharisees are upset, and there sits Jesus weeping. His perspective of this moment and the perspective of those around him are completely different 
Verse 11 tells us that he entered Jerusalem, went into the temple, and when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. After weeping over the city and the coming judgment of God on Jerusalem, Jesus makes his way into the temple. He looks around at everything happening in preparation for Passover. He sees the money changers. He observes the animals being bought and sold, the people filing in and filing out. He observes it all. And then he leaves. He goes right back to Bethany, right back up the hill, same way they came. What a strange closing to this story. The day is far spent, the evening is approaching, Jesus turns right back around and goes right back to Bethany. That's how our passage for today closes. It seems at one moment like it has all this momentum that just sort of fizzles out. The wave of energy and buzz dies down as Jesus returns back to the place that he was at the start of the day. It's very anticlimactic. It leaves us asking, what changed? What did Jesus see that the crowds did not? What, what was his perspective? So as we consider this question, I want us to take note of of three things for our closing thoughts. And when I say closing thoughts, I mean probably another 45 minutes. <laughs> you see, there's something that is right in front of them that neither the disciples nor the crowds can see. And I want us to pause here for a moment and take it in. I want you to note three things if you're a note taker. Jesus' timing Jesus' path and Jesus' patience. His timing, his path, and his patience. Let's talk about the timing first. The occasion that brings Jesus to Jerusalem is the celebration of Passover. He has purposefully been working through the countryside to be in Jerusalem at this exact moment. He's likely made the arrangements to come riding in on a donkey in advance, and he sent his disciples to go in and get it. And during the Passover celebration, the city of Jerusalem would swell to an estimated two million pilgrims at this time. One historian recorded that there was an estimated 260,000 lambs that would be slaughtered during Passover. It was a national holiday. It was the equivalent of the 4th of July for us. It was a symbol of Israel's liberation, their freedom. It was a significant time it's such a significant time that even the pagan rulers of the day came to the city. We know from the gospel accounts that both Herod and Pilate were in the city at this time. Jesus is entering Jerusalem 
at a high time. And the reason that Jesus is going to Jerusalem at Passover is to fulfill the picture that was created in the original Passover. See, the Passover was the celebration that commemorated God's judgment on Egypt and his purchase of freedom for the, for the Israelites. The Israelites had been held captive under oppressive Egyptian rule for 430 years. Then through the miraculous intervention of God, he raised up a deliverer. Moses. And you remember, Moses had been miraculously preserved at his birth and eventually called by God to, to go and confront Pharaoh and tell him what God had said. God had said to Pharaoh, let my people go. Now, this is obviously an affront. God is saying to Pharaoh, you're not the king of these people. I am the king of these people. Let my people go. When Pharaoh resisted, God sent plagues, one after the other, upon the land of Egypt. And the entire nation suffered as a result. At the last plague, God gives a final warning to Pharaoh, to all the people. In Exodus chapter 11 and 12, you can go back if you want to this week and, and remind yourself of the story. But God instructs Moses to bear the message that at midnight he will go throughout Egypt and take the life of every firstborn in the land of Egypt, from Pharaoh's household to the slave household to even the livestock. And when the entire country wakes up to this suffering and loss, will no longer be an option for Pharaoh. The people will be begging, let them go. Well, God made good on his promise. This proclamation of judgment applied to everyone. Anyone in the land who did not submit to God's word would fall under the judgment of Yahweh in that moment. Every family was given instructions. There was only one way for them to escape this judgment. They had to purge the leaven from their home, take a lamb and move it into their house to live with them for four days. From the 10th of the month to the 14th of the month, this was a, a time for inspection to make sure that the lamb was at, without spot, it was without blemish. Then they would slaughter the lamb, catch the blood in a basin, take a hyssop branch, and smear the blood on the doorposts, on the lintel, and to take the blood from the sap or from the threshold of the door. Now, get this picture. On the night before leaving Egypt, the head of every home of the children of Israel would take this lamb outside to the front of their house, to the doorway, to the little rain gutter or basin, the sap at the bottom of the door. They would kill the lamb by slicing its throat and letting the blood drip down into the threshold, this little trench at their door. They would take a hyssop branch and, and dab the blood and smear the blood on the two side posts and at the top 
of the door. These are the same places that Jesus would bleed from in the crucifixion, his head, his feet, his hands. I want us to think through the significance, not just of, of the lamb that would be slain and the blood, but the effect of this moment on the people of God. The effect that is happening as a result of this. The Israelites themselves are under the same judgment as the Egyptians. They are due to have the same experience as the Egyptians. But if the lamb is slain and the blood is applied, the firstborn of that household is spared. They escape the judgment. All they have to do is put their faith in what God has said. That's all that they have to do. They, they have to trust the words of God and apply the blood of the Lamb. And now we can see how powerful the picture and motivation for Jesus to enter Jerusalem at this specific time. You'll remember, Jesus also was miraculously spared from a slaughter at his birth, just like Moses. But now he is here as the greater than Moses. Remember, Israel had been under 400 years of silence, not hearing from a prophet until John the Baptist was born. And then Jesus and John, approximately the same age, probably born in the same year. It's now another 30 years later, 430 years from the last prophet. And Jesus presents himself now as the king of his people who will lead them out of captivity. He's now come as the Lamb of God, ready to be inspected for his, for his worthiness to see if there's any unworthiness in him. And during that time, he'll be tested by the scribes and the Pharisees as they question him, looking for any flaw over the next four days. He'll come back to the temple and purge it of the leaven of the Pharisees. And on Thursday evening, he'll be arrested, falsely accused, and crucified. And in this one moment, Jesus is both the fulfillment of the greater than Moses and the better Passover lamb at this exact time. This is a significant moment for Jesus to enter Jerusalem. But no, not only the timing of Jesus' approach, but also the path of Jesus' approach. Here, Jesus takes the eastern approach to Jerusalem. He could come at it from any side. He chooses to come from the east. He comes over the Mount of Olives to the Temple Mount and will enter in through what is called the Golden Gate or the Beautiful Gate. It is a fulfillment of Ezekiel chapter 43, verses 1 and 2, where Ezekiel is given this vision. And Ezekiel said, Then he this angel led me to the gate, the gate facing east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel 
was coming from the east. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. Jesus now enters through the same gate to go onto the Temple Mount and inspect the Father's house. Interestingly enough, the, the, the two doors that were on the gate, each of those two doors of this double gate had a name. One was called, called Bab al-Rama, the gate of mercy. That's the southern one. And the northern gate was called Bal al-Tuba, or Bab al-Tuba, the gate of repentance. Even to this day in Arabic, that gate gets called the gate of eternal life. It was the gate used by the high priest to come into the temple on the Day of Atonement and make atonement for the sins of the nation, to make peace between God and the entire nation in one day. And now Jesus is coming on the eastern path, the same path that the glory of God came and entered the temple in Ezekiel's vision. The same path that the priests would take to make atonement for the nation in that moment through the gate of eternal life. Through the doors of mercy and of repentance. It's a powerful, powerful picture. Another significant point of Jesus' approach to Jerusalem is this. The temple was constructed in such a way that it symbolized the Garden of Eden, or the meeting place between God and man, the place where the world all fell apart. On the walls, on the curtains of the temple were carvings of all kinds of fruit trees and almond blossoms and and everything else. It was made to, to represent or to look like the Garden of Eden. Everything in the temple was meant to signify the way back to God. To undo what had been lost in the Garden of Eden. The veil, that curtain that separated the holiest of holies from the holy place. That veil that only the high priest could enter in on one day out of the year. After having his sins covered by the blood of the Lamb. Embroidered upon that veil were cherubim, just like the cherubim that were placed at the the eastern side of the Garden of Eden to prevent mankind from coming back and eating from the tree of life. The mercy seat or the lid on the Ark of the Covenant was also protected by and carved uh, with cherubim that veiled the presence of God. Remember, Adam and Eve were banished from the west to the east of the garden for their sin. And when the tabernacle and the temple were constructed, they were constructed in such a way that the worshiper is enacting going backwards towards the garden of Eden. Backwards towards reconciliation with God. Backwards towards the presence of God and the Holy of Holies. 
The entire sacrificial system was a visual depiction of mankind finding their way back to God. And in order to find a way back to God, sin would have to be dealt with and forgiven by God. The lamb would have to be slain. The blood would have to be sprinkled. Now think about this. Jesus approaches from the direction that Adam and Eve were sent out. They were banished by their sin, but the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world now approaches from the east, drawing a crowd with him backward. Jesus approaches as the greater than Adam, the last Adam, who undoes the failings of Adam and Eve. And you'll remember upon his death, the veil in the temple will tear from the top to the bottom by the work of the Father as a way of saying to humanity, there's a permanent way back. There's a way back to my presence now. God is saying, sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, come home to me. It's incredible. It's an incredible, incredible picture. Not only that, but as the last Adam, here comes Jesus riding on a, a colt that has not been broken. It's never been ridden before. And he just comes calmly riding in on this unbroken colt. He's like this walking picture of, of life before in the garden when there was harmony between man and nature, between man and the animals. It's this incredible, incredible moment. And Jesus is coming from Bethany at this moment. The home of Lazarus, the one who was raised from the dead. And Jesus is, is like, or excuse me, Lazarus is likely in the crowd hailing Jesus in that moment. And Lazarus, his, his presence in the crowd becomes this sort of 3D picture of what Jesus will do when he's crucified in Jerusalem. Jesus comes as the one who will be raised from the dead, just like Lazarus. Although in contrast to Lazarus, it is not simply a revivification or coming back alive again. It is a final resurrection. Jesus will be raised from the dead forever. He will not need to die again. And in doing so, he will establish his throne and his reign forever. He can now be, as the eternal one who never dies, the Davidic king whose throne lasts forever. He can become the eternal high priest. Whoever lives to make intercession on our behalf, he comes from the place of resurrection to die and be raised again from the dead. Listen, there are so many things happening here at once. We could take all day to talk about the way that so many pictures from the Bible find their fulfillment in Jesus' approach to Jerusalem. Everything that Jesus does here is purposeful. 
Listen, everything that Jesus is doing was planned before the foundations of the world. This is not haphazard. This is a pointed moment that was purposed in covenant before the world began between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They said, this is what we will do. And he comes for such a time as this. Note, not only his approach, not only the timing, but note also his patience. You know, Jesus expects to be rejected in Jerusalem. He knows that neither his disciples nor the crowds will truly get what his kingdom is all about, what it is that he's really come to do. And Jesus has been telling his disciples that he will be rejected and killed and on the third day rise again. He's been preparing them ever since the Mount of Transfiguration. This is what's coming. Knowing all of this, Jesus chooses in this moment not to come on a war horse, but on the colt, on the foal of a donkey. He chooses not to take a hostile stance or posture, but a humble one, even in the face of rejection and misunderstanding. How does he respond to the stubbornness of Jerusalem that will ultimately bring about judgment as the city ends up being sacked in 70 AD by Titus? He responds with broken-hearted weeping. Think about this moment. Think about Jesus As he comes over, he sees the city. The crowds are cheering. He knows what's happening. He sees above it all. This is the moment that God has been planning since before the foundations of the earth. And he sees it. He takes it all in. He knows the crowds don't really get it. They don't really understand. And here sits the Messiah, shoulders bouncing as he sobs over the city that will reject him broken-hearted over their stiff-neckedness. How does he respond when he witnesses the corruption in his father's house? He doesn't just go in and blow his top, lose his cool. He goes in, he observes, he sees. Mark's gospel tells us he turns around that night and leaves before taking any action. We know that he'll cleanse the temple, but he doesn't do it in blind rage. He's patient. He waits. He'll come to cleanse the temple on another day. This entire passage is marked by the patience of Jesus. The crowds made the mistake of thinking that the agenda of Jesus was merely a political movement. But Jesus sees much deeper to their greatest need. He knows that he is the king 
that they need, not the king that they want. The brokenness of the world grows, goes so much deeper than what they see, and the solution is much more than they could understand. Political corruption, moral degradations, and social injustices are mere symptoms of the root cause. The root cause is the heart of man. And everyone except Jesus in this moment is missing it. You know, listen, as, as Christians, aren't we guilty of the same mistake? We make the same mistake as the crowds. We make the same mistake as the disciples. We, we can get worked up about liberal policies and a lack of morality in our world. Or, or like the disciples, we can believe that Jesus is somehow a means to an end. If I follow him, I get the life I always wanted, the place of honor, the place of power, the place of prosperity. Guys, I'm guilty of it too. Too often, as I look around and I see the brokenness of the world, I find myself just upset and, 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 and angry. I watch the news and I'm frustrated about what is happening. I, I, I think about even just the changes in my lifetime. How much our culture has shifted. I go, what in the world? People have lost their minds. And I find myself sitting there like a grumpy old grandpa. It's like, Ugh! Gosh, I can't even stand to watch the news. What's wrong with people, you know? I make the same mistake. Too often I forget to see something that is staring me right in the face the whole time. God was patient with me to wait until I would repent. I want, on the one hand, for him to come and deal justly with the world. And on the other hand, had he done it 30 years ago, I would not be saved. The patience of God is something to behold for all of us. God was patient with me in my sin so that I would have space to repent and he is patient in the world so that it has space to repent as well. He did not greet me with his wrath. Rather, it was the goodness and kindness of God that led me to repentance. He met me with brokenheartedness over my sin. And the message that he took the wrath for me on the cross I'll just trust him as a loving king. I could be a part of his kingdom. And guys, this is so important because if we confuse the message of the gospel with a call for morality or political change, we miss the kingdom that Jesus offers. We're just like the crowds. We're just like the disciples. Listen, hell will be filled with Republicans and Democrats. 
Hell will be filled with moral people who make ethical decisions. It will be filled with conservatives. It will be filled with liberals. Hell will be filled with straight people and virgins. This is the reason, guys, why fighting for purity in the gospel, why, why not muddying the gospel with other people's agendas is so vital to our life because what hangs in the balance is eternity. It's crucial for us as disciples to fight for the purity of the gospel. We can't let it get corrupted or co-opted by either side of the aisle. We cannot get the message confused. Guys, the, he- the thought of hell does not bring God any pleasure. Did you know that? It doesn't bring him any delight. He has a plan for peace on earth. He has a plan to redeem the world and fix what's broken in the world. But only those who trust in him will get to enjoy that plan. And the thought of hell does not bring God any delight whatsoever. And this is not my idea. This isn't just something that I came up with. It's something that he expressly states. He tells the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 33, verse 11, Go and tell my people this. Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, the Lord says. See, in patience, Jesus presents himself as the king of peace to his people, longing for them to repent. The patient love of Jesus is the fuel for our mission in the world. When we wake up and judgment has not happened, it's a reason for us to go, God is being patient today. There are people he's waiting for to repent. I need to go. I need to preach. I need to talk about the gospel. I need to bring this to the forefront. People need to know. The Lord is patiently waiting so that more people have the opportunity to repent. The patience of God should drive us to take advantage of every opportunity to proclaim the gospel. The mission of God is not merely social change or social justice. It is the good news of the gospel, saving people from hell for all of eternity. The the political agenda and the agenda of Jesus are not the same. They're not. We have to stay focused on the point of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. He came to seek and to save the lost, not to overthrow a political party. Yes, we we fight injustice. Yes, we care about morality and ethics. But we as believers, as disciples of Jesus, are focused like a laser on the gospel as the means of salvation. What was Jesus longing for the people around him to experience? What did he see that the crowds could not? Well, he tells us himself 
later in the week, and a moment where again he's weeping over the city of Jerusalem, Matthew chapter 23. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have, I wanted to gather them under my wing. As a, as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. But you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus was longing to love the people that were rejecting him the same way that a mother hen loves its chicks. He wanted to gather them under his wing, close to his heart, under his protection. He is an exact representation of the mother-like heart of Father God. His patience was an opportunity to come to him. His patience is, even now, an opportunity to come to him, not as the king that you want, but as the king you need. And so, the patience of Jesus reminds us of this today. Perhaps you've fallen into sin. Perhaps you've been in a season of distancing yourself from God. He is patiently waiting, saying, come back. It's open house. I made a way. You don't have to run. Come to me, even now. I want to gather you the same way that a mother gathers its chicks underneath its wings. I want to protect you. I want to provide for you. I want to love you. I want you to be close to my heart. Come to me. I'm patiently waiting. I'd like to invite the worship team at this time. Maybe before you go home today, you need to do some repenting before the Lord. Or or perhaps you just need someone to pray for you. And, and right here in this room are, is an entire household of disciples who are qualified and called by God to pray for you. If you're here this morning, you need prayer, reach out to somebody next to you and say, please, hey, I, my heart is heavy. God's been speaking to my heart. I need prayer this morning. Would you pray for me? Let's minister to one another. Let's continue to worship Jesus for who he is. And for those of you whom God might be speaking to, take action. Because the Lord has been waiting for a moment such as this. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this incredible moment that you've recorded for us in history. Where we get to see all the threads of the Bible coming together in this incredible moment. As you enter into the city as the King of Kings. As we worship you now, lift our eyes to see you as you are, to behold your glory, and to respond to your worth. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.